You're listening to Full Metal Podcast, a hard defense podcast brought to you by the defense team at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome. I'm Susanna Bloom, and today I'm here with... Jerry Hendricks. Adam Ruth. And I'm Lauren Fish. Today's special guest in the second half of the episode will be Frank Kendall, former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, talking to us about the latest developments in acquisition reform. Uh, first off, before we dive into our usual roundtable, I'd like to thank Jerry Hendricks for three and a half years of brilliant leadership of the defense team here at the Center for a New American Security, and announced that following his departure this month, we'll be taking a little bit of a hiatus for Full Metal Podcast through the fall. Oh, thank you, Susanna. So, first topic up, apparently the Navy's latest Zumwalt is about to uh, hit the water. Jerry, thoughts? So, second of the class, um, you know, we had the, of course, the, the Elmo Zumwalt was the lead. Uh, now we're having the Michael Mansour, uh, named after the SEAL Medal of Honor recipient. Uh, the third of the ship will be the Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, but Michael Mansour is uh, out for acceptance trials, and there's been some interesting background conversation about the Zumwalt in the sense that the Chief of Naval Operations has talked about the, uh, how much he likes the idea of taking a mature hull for the Navy's next cruiser. And given the fact that really there's only three large hulls in the world that are currently under construction, which is the British Type 26, uh, the Navy's Arleigh Burke class destroyer, and then the Zumwalt, uh, and the CNO talking about the need for a lot of excess power capacity, it looks like the senior Navy leadership is looking at extending the Zumwalt line and maybe converting it over from being a land attack destroyer, as they call the three Zumwalts, and, uh, and going perhaps with a large cruiser. But what about the cost implications of a decision like that? I mean, it's not a cheap ship. Well, the cruiser was never going to be a cheap ship. So we looked at estimates for the cruiser of anywhere from 3.5 to $5 billion a piece. As we look at uh, replacing the now increasingly aged uh, Ticonderoga-class cruisers, each which come with 122 v VLS tubes. So we're looking to really make up some missile capacity in the force. And with the advent of new directed energy and electromagnetic weapons, we're going to need a platform that's got a lot of power, and the Zumwalt's have got power in spades. What about the, the challenges between these two types of ships in terms of personnel and maintenance? So I know the Zumwalt was supposed to have a lot of advanced technology. It was supposed to cut down the number of crew needed. Uh, we're hearing from some Navy commanders that that's not necessarily the case, so they may still need just as many uh, crew members on board. Uh, what's the difference there between these two ship options, Jerry? Well, this is probably the most modern electrical package in the sense that it's an all-electric backbone. It's got new power generators. It's got uh, a sort of a, an electrical uh, a spine that goes through it that distributes the electrical power in a very automated way. And so the ship is designed essentially to be semi-automated going forward. We expect that the cruise size will maybe be only two-thirds the size of cruisers that we've seen in the past. And so over the life expectancy of the ship, we would expect the, the, the life cost of that platform to come down. I will say that the upfront cost of the Zumwalt's has been exceedingly high. The first three are coming out essentially in greater than $4 billion a piece. Uh, but we think that as we build more, we would, of course, accrue some savings over time. Yeah, would those savings also trickle down to things like the munitions on board? Because there's been some the increase in the munition price as the buy decreases for a decreased buy of the Zumwalt. Yeah, so that's the expectation. One of the reasons why the cost of some of that ammunition is so high is because we were only buying for three platforms. Exactly. And so if we were able to extend out uh, the number of platforms, then that gives you a greater population supply and the overall 
average unit costs come down. So that was one of the reasons why the three Zoom Waltz costs really spiked, because we truncated it three. Speaking of cost, <laughs> uh, <laughs> coming out of the House Armed Services Committee this week, we saw a new proposal from Chairman Thornberry uh, about what is known colloquially as the fourth estate, uh, but is really kind of the defense-wide accounts in DOD. And the proposal uh, would, you know, would mandate a cut of about $25 billion in that space and also the outright elimination of a great many of defense agencies and field activities. Um, you know, while I'll stipulate at the front that certainly you know, there are efficiencies to be gained in that space, this is not the first time leadership has gone searching for efficiencies in that space. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a pond that has been fished many, many times before. Uh, moreover, I think what a lot of people are forgetting or what I'm not hearing as part of this debate is the fact that a lot of these defense agencies and field activities were created to generate efficiencies in the first place. So to prevent the services from you know, each running an independent human resources operation, the idea was that you could garner some cost savings by centralizing those functions. Yeah, so that was the point that I was, I was gonna raise is the idea that we, we talk about that the average uh, cost of the Office of Secretary of Defense has gone up uh, incrementally over time. But the fact is, is a lot of that's because we've looked like Defense Logistics Agency. We took the logistics forces out of all of the services somewhat combined them to get more efficiency out of that and so all of that cost accrues and gets added into the OSD budget and that's why that budget appears to go up. I'm just wondering if there's actually real room to spare in going after some of these agencies. They're talking about wholesale elimination of some and, and I haven't really identified one that I'm really comfortable with just doing away with. No, I, I certainly feel the same way Jerry because that work still needs to be done. I, I mean when you look at you know uh, DTIC, you know, organization that's responsible for being the central, pro, you know, repository for technical data. Does it make sense that there should be standardization within the United States Department of Defense in the way that we report technical data? Yes, it does. That's a crazy, crazy idea. <laughs> um, right. And so, um, you know, I see a lot of these things. I think the other thing that people tend to forget is that when you're talking about, quote unquote, finding efficiencies in the fourth estate, what you're really talking about doing is cutting jobs in somebody's congressional district. So even where you can, uh, you know, for example, automate additional accounting processes or what have you, that comes down to Congress, who is repeatedly act to block those kinds of efficiencies or those kinds of cuts because they mean lost jobs. Yeah, and this is also on the heels of about, I think, two years ago, there was an initiative in the NDAA for the department to cut 25% of this kind of management headquarters staff. And so they're already doing that, and that was over the FY 2016 to 2020 timeframe. So you'd think that you'd want to let it settle and figure out where there actually is room for reform further after that four-year time period than doing another halfway through that four-year period. I also can't help but add that the this quote-unquote fourth estate also includes things like the Missile Defense Agency, uh, whose budget grew considerably over the last two cycles. Special Operations Command is part of this wedge, part of this account. Uh, and so, you know, it's not all just accounting and human resources. There is real warfighting capability embedded in this space. I mean, what is what is his goal aside from just efficiencies gained? I mean, if you're making cuts to the Missile Defense Agency and the Special Operations Command. I mean, what efficiencies are you hoping to, to get from that? That's not what I just, that's, I don't get that. I'm yes. not sure. So I'm to following. be fair to Chairman Thornberry, he, he does not propose cutting those pieces of the fourth estate. He would carve them out. 
what that means is that the cuts to the rest of the fourth estate would have to be that much more draconian to kind of make up the difference for the fact that he's ah. hived off those uh, agencies and that combatant command. Um, you know, what he wants to do is, is change the ratio of tooth to tail. He wants to take money out of the back office function and put it into war fighting capability. Very admirable goal. Uh, but it's I'm just really pessimistic about how much more real ability there is to cut in that space. I think one of the things about that two-to-tail ratio, and it's something that, that troubles me, is that the more technically complex we become, the more important the tail becomes. And so uh, although I'm all in favor of having more tooth and less tail, the fact of the matter is, is when you're dealing with advanced uh, technical systems, you know, hypersonics or electric, uh, electromagnetic, that, there's a lot of tail that goes with the maintenance of that, development of that, the, the care and servicing of that, and even how you fire it. So it, it's a long line to get a weapon forward in a, in a combat arena. So speaking of those kinds of advanced technologies, there's some news out of the Pentagon uh, this week as well. Lauren, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So there's in indications that the AI Center of Excellence is going to come online in the next six months. So there's a lot of emphasis there, but there's other high-tech capabilities that have been you know, highlighted, including in the budget um, rollout about um, like hypersonics, for example, like we're talking about, and those aren't getting as much investment. Yeah, so that makes perfect sense, except for the fact that Mike Griffin recently was in an interview and suggested that hypersonics would be the top technical priority for Pentagon R&D going ahead. So I think there's going to be some issues that they need to address there. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank Jerry Hendricks again and wish him a very fond farewell as he departs for his next adventure. And stay tuned for a chat with Frank Kendall. Hi, this is Susanna Bloom from the Defense Program here at the Center for New American Security, and you're listening to Full Metal Podcast. Today, I'm here with special guest Frank Kendall, who is the former Undersecretary of Acquisition Technology and Logistics in the Department of Defense, uh, and is currently an executive in residence at Renaissance Strategic Advisors. Frank, thanks for coming today. Susanna, great to be with you. Thanks. Uh, you had a great piece in Defense One a couple weeks ago where you talked a little bit about you know the five myths about Pentagon acquisition, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about those. Sure. Uh, the idea for this piece actually has been in my head for a couple of years, and it, it resulted from my perception that there were some myths that were prevalent in Washington that were not valid, that were potentially going to drive policy, uh, and not in a positive way. Uh, there is a perception that the acquisition system uh, doesn't work, basically that it's all bureaucracy, that it takes far too long to get new products to the field. Um, some of these are, are just frankly not correct. We have the best weapon systems in the world. We have had them for uh, decades now. Uh, people are buying our weapon systems. It's one of the things that gives us a, uh, one of the areas in which we have a positive trade balance. So, <clears throat> and then they've been very effective, obviously, when employed. Uh, people uh, try very hard to become our partners in new product development. So we're producing good products, and they're serving our operators very well. Uh, that said, we could obviously be more efficient. Any organization could be. Uh, there are some examples of per performance in the sense of cost and schedule overruns and delays. And occasionally things aren't actually fielded that we start out to attempt to do. So there's plenty of room for improvement. But to say the system is fundamentally broken isn't true. Uh, to say that the bureaucracy is uh, what it's all about is 
not true either. Uh, bureaucracy does add a layer of cost. It's not the core source of uh, fun, uh, delays and schedule slips. That's generally within a program execution uh, or poor planning, unrealistic planning. Uh, the thing that is most easily correctable that slows programs down is the availability of funding and sometimes the availability of requirements that are designed to, which should be a collaborative process. Uh, I can go on and on, Susanna, about some of these things, but basically uh, what I was trying to do was to convince people that wild changes in acquisition policy under the uh, rubric of acquisition reform are not the right way to go. Uh, that the approach I used, and which I think is the correct one, is a, an approach of continuous improvement. Find the areas where you have specific known things that can be done better and attack those. And after you've done that, find the next list of things you can be done better and attack those. In a continuing effort to uh, increase efficiency, take advantage of more modern technologies and business practices uh, and achieve better results. It's hard work. It's detailed work. Uh, it takes a certain amount of expertise to do it that way. But I think that's the right approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current version of acquisition reform that I'm hearing a lot about is something called rapid acquisition, which I, I believe uh, risks putting us into a position we've been in in the past where unrealistic uh, planning uh, led to people taking wild risks in programs with very predictable results. Could you give an example? Sure. Uh, the future combat system for the Army. Biggest disaster in the history of uh, acquisition. Uh, the Army spent on the order of 10 to 15 billion dollars and got absolutely nothing out for all that effort. Several years of uh, investment capital were wasted and I don't think the Army's recovered from that uh, adventure, if you will, yet. Uh, at that time I was in the industry side. I saw this happening from the industry side, uh, did what I could to uh, try to move things in the right direction, but it, it was a painful thing to see. Going back a couple of decades earlier, uh, there's the uh, A-12 Navy program. Schedule in the case of FCS was dictated by the Chief of Staff of the Army. The schedule and acquisition approach in the case of the A-12 was dictated by the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, and in both cases, they were totally unrealistic, and uh, people can always pretend at the beginning of a program that things are going fine, but eventually you have to start to deliver things. And in the case of the A-12, um, major schedule slips, major overruns, and ultimately cancellation. So we've seen this play before, and we know how it ends, and I'm afraid we're going to... Uh, uh, put the show on again, and it will take a few years for the results to be clear, uh, but I think they're fairly predictable. So I think what you may be alluding to there is a recent mandate from Congress to devolve more acquisition authority to the services as opposed to, um, you know, your successor, uh, Ellen Lord, the current Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. Um, and I wonder, you know, in the in the case of those two cases that you just mentioned, the Army Future Combat System, the A-12, you know, what What could have solved those problems, what could have saved those programs from cancellation if not, you know, this kind of drive to reducing the layers of people involved in decision making? Uh, the, the incentives to uh, be optimistic in planning in particular are very strong in the services. Uh, the operators who often are not acquisition professionals or hardly ever operate, uh, acquisition professionals know that they want things faster, they don't want them to be better, and they know they want them to be cheaper. So they will often put a lot of pressure on people that are actually doing the procurements to plan more aggressively and to take greater risk. That was sort of the case with FCS, it was the case with, with A12. Industry then has no choice but to bid to whatever the government's asking for because they know they won't uh, be selected unless they do so. 
and they do it with the hope that somehow things will work out, and if things don't go well, that they'll be bailed out and the program will continue and they'll be funded anyway. Uh, those um, Im imperatives or incentives to optimism are built into the structure. They're, structure they're not easily uh, overcome. The Undersecretary for Acquisition was created in 1986 because there was a, a large number of disastrous programs that had been going on. And the idea was to bring in a check and balance that uh, worked for the Secretary of Defense and was outside those service pressures to put better management and better planning in place and to provide some discipline to the process. The data shows when you compare the results from the year era after that, and a friend of mine at Institute for Defense Analysis is about to publish a report on this, that there was a 50% reduction, roughly, in cost overruns from the time the USDA was created forward as compared to the 20 or 30 years before that. That's a dramatic improvement. But unfortunately, people don't look at the data. Uh, they, they operate often on a policy basis based on kind of cocktail party talk and, and perceptions. So that's the idea of the myths that we talked about earlier. So uh, there, there's pretty clear evidence that having that check and balance, it's analogous to a situation in a corporation where one of the business units wants to make a major strategic investment. And the corporation does some due diligence on that investment. It checks the planning, looks at the cost estimating, looks at the technical risk before approving the project. And once the project approves, it's in the hands of the business unit to execute. That's essentially the model that we've used for the last 30 years. So what, what has happened with the current administration is that while the statute doesn't require this, uh, my successor, in a sense, Ellen Lord, has delegated a large number of programs to the services. And I think the results there are fairly predictable. Uh, we've, we've seen this play before, but I think we're about to, again, repeat it. Yeah. Uh, Christine Fox made a comment at a conference that we had a couple weeks ago that, um, you know, the kinds of programs that are really going to help us maintain and extend our technological edge over competitors like China and Russia are programs that inherently are going to have cost and schedule risk programs that you're not going to be able to determine right at the outset exactly how much they're going to cost to develop and field and, and how quickly you're going to be able to overcome uh, you know, the, the challenges in technology development. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I have been sort of thinking, you know, should there be separate classes of acquisition pro programs that have different risk tolerance, you know, both in the department and in the Congress? Uh, there already are, and we can adjust the risk profile based on, say, operational urgency. That's exactly what we did with MRAPs, which is a good example. Uh, there are some lessons to be learned from uh, MRAPs and to other programs that are done in a more disciplined and uh, 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 traditionally structured, if you will, manner. Uh, we put about 30,000 MRAPs. We did it because people were dying, and we needed to provide protection for our soldiers in the field. We did it in a hurry. We spent a lot of money. Um, we today in the inventory are only keeping about for five five thousand or so of those thirty thousand MRAPs. The rest have been disposed of. The reason is that they weren't designed for the range of conditions that uh, the Army intends to be able to needs to be able to operate in. They weren't designed for reliability. They lack a number of features that the users want and demand in a product that we take more time to engineer and design to meet all their needs. A product like that is a joint light tactical vehicle which went through a long development history, but we'll keep all of the vehicles that we buy under the JLTV program in the inventory for 30 or 40 years. That's a substantial difference. So you get something for that effort that you put into 
uh, a more disciplined process, a more careful design process, which is uh, meeting the full range of, of requirements that the operator wants. You get a higher quality product, and you get one that you're going to keep much longer. So that, that's the trade-off. There's a trade-off there. We can make that trade-off now. If the operators come in and say they've got to have something fast because of technological surprise, for example, uh, then we can move more quickly. We can take more risk. We're going to have more waste when we do that. Uh, but you may get the product faster, and uh, it may meet an important need that the, that the country has. And uh, sort of further to that point on you know maintaining the, the U.S. technological edge, we're seeing more and more um, techno, you know, game-changing technological developments that are coming out of the private sector as opposed to DOD labs. And I wonder what you think about whether or not DOD has the right tools and ability to kind of put their hands on those technologies and access them. I think overall it does. Um, what you need to do for industry is create an incentive to get the behavior that you want. If you ask for those technologies, you'll get them. Defense contractors know how to integrate commercial technologies. They do it all the time. Um, when I was the chief engineer at Raytheon, for example, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. I was looking for technologies to make us more competitive. Uh, but at the end of the day, the industrial base responds to the requirements that the operators give it. Uh, and uh, I, I think Christine's point that you mentioned earlier is, is very apt. The operators want the best in the world. They want to be a decade ahead of the other guy's equipment. You have to take risk. All new product development entails risk. You don't have to look any further than the Boeing uh, KC-46 tanker program to see that. This is a relatively straightforward design, but Boeing is overrun on the order of 2 or $3 billion already on the program uh, and still hasn't delivered a product that meets all the requirements. So even when it's a design that should be relatively straightforward, you can still encounter uh, problems. You can also make mistakes, and in the case of the tanker, there's some of both of that. So it's, it's not realistic to think of new product design, particularly a very sophisticated complex weapon system, which are pretty unique products, and by the way, which we buy in relatively small quantities, uh, as a risk-free endeavor. It will never be a risk-free endeavor, and uh, maintaining technological superiority is never going to be a risk-free endeavor. Yeah. So certainly back to an issue that we talked a little bit about earlier uh, in terms of reform. The House Armed Services Committee Chairman Mac Thornberry has just released a new uh, proposal for reform in what is colloquially known as the Fourth Estate. These are the defense-wide accounts, defense agencies and field activities like DLA, the Defense Logistics Agency, the Defense Health Agency, the Missile Defense Agency, and many of them, many of those agencies had formerly been under your purview. Um, the proposal uh, would direct elimination of several of those defense agencies and some pretty uh, heavy cuts to the ones that are remaining. Uh, and I was just wondering if you had any kind of thoughts about the value of those agencies to DOD as an institution and, and you know, how you would, uh, you know, whether and how you would go about making sure that, that uh, the mission of the department wasn't affected by a proposal like that. Well, the good thing about what uh, uh, the chairman has done is to give the department time to plan and react to what, he's, what he apparently is going to put into the law. The, the history of those agencies is interesting. We, they, they are a significant part of the defense budget. Uh, and at one point several years ago, we had a meeting where we, in the Pentagon, the senior leadership, where we were undergoing the Gates efficiency initiatives and looking at sequestration and cutting costs was on everyone's mind. It was an imperative. And we took a look at how much money was being spent on those agencies. And Mike Donnelly, who was at the time 
Secretary of the Air Force, but had before that worked in, in the Secretary of Defense's office, made a comment that was really important. Those agencies were created as an efficiency measure. They were created because doing all of those functions independently in each of the services was very inefficient. So they exist to achieve efficiency. Now you can make an argument that they're not doing a good enough job of that, and I think it's worthwhile to take the time to examine them and examine their business practices and look at the functions that have grown up there and see whether they're really needed or not. Uh, so a, a review of all those agencies is, is perfectly merited. We did do some of that, particularly their contracting work, but a lot of that work that they do is contracted out uh, during the previous administration. But another look is fine. Uh, but to start with the assumption they can be eliminated, I think, is, is dangerous. Uh, they all do functions that have value to the department, whether it's human resources or logistics or security or uh, the Defense Technology Information Center is basically our repository of technical information for the entire department. Do we need a depository like that? Yes. Uh, do we want to have some standards by which all contractors and all services uh, uh, record their data so that people don't have it to do it differently for different customers? I think the answer to that is yes, too. So th there are reasons these organizations exist. They do provide real functionality. Uh, I think it's a big mistake to assume that just because there's a lot of money there that there's a lot of money to be saved. Well, great. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Frank Kendall, thank you very much for joining me. Sam, great to be with you. Good to see you guys.